0: This is Island Waves. You're listening to Something to Talk About, a series on everyday people and giving them a voice into their lives. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. This is Island Waves, and you are listening to Something to Talk About. And today's guest is Karen Senechal from Cambridge, Prince Edward Island. How are you doing today, Karen? Great. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about who you are. Tell us about who Karen is, uh, the Karen growing up where you were born, where you came from, and life before you met the love of your life. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, Frank Senechal. So first of all, Karen, you were born uh, with the surname before you were Senechal. You were Karen what? Karen Ladds. And how did you spell that last name?
1: L-A-D-D-S. So you are a uh, French ethnicity? No, I'm... A combination of English and Irish. English and Irish. Well, how was
0: that growing up in Quebec? First of all, you were born. Tell us where you were born. You were born in Quebec, so we know that's the province. But...
1: I was born in northern Quebec in a town called Naranda. It was a mining town, a copper mining town. My father worked there after the war, and we just he met my mother there. I had my beginning and my, until I left for after high school, I lived there all my life. So you grew up there.
0: You went through high school there. After that, you went to Montreal. So suffice it to say that while you were in high school is when you met Mr. Senechal.
1: That's right. We weren't in the same classes, but we met I don't know how we met. I guess we met through friends.
0: Well, as he had put it in his interview, uh, you had a boyfriend at the time, and you were not in each other's circles during high school, but you knew, I guess it was love at first sight, it was that glance, you knew he existed. And then at some point, you became the queen of the ball, and of which you invited him to escort you to his surprise.
1: That was in Miranda. So from there you went to the... The naval cadets had a, a ball every spring and they always had a um, competition for queen of the navy ball and I ran for it one year and won.
0: So you were the queen of the naval ball.
1: Yeah and then the next year I, um, I asked Frank to escort me because I had to give in my crown, so to speak.
0: (laughs) Turn it over to your successor. It
1: it was good for one year.
0: Good for one year. And during that year, did you have duties that were associated? Like what were some of the things you had to do?
1: Actually, there was nothing that you had to do. It was just a, I don't know what you call it, a, a ceremony thing that they did every year. No job. I actually thought one time that I was supposed to show up for some event that they were holding at the arena so I went and they all looked at me and thought what is she doing here so they had me walk up and down in front of the cadets as they were doing their inspection and and then uh, that was it I went home but that really wasn't part of the job either. But I, unbeknownst to me, I showed up didn't have to be there.
0: But maybe there was a worth, maybe they were proving to see whether such beauty could distract the focus of the cadets. And that that was a pass the fail (laughs) for them on that. But uh, Yeah. yeah, I guess things would be much different now with social media, right? So yeah, that was interesting. So that was after high school that you did this.
1: After high school, I applied to the Royal Victoria Hospital for, to be trained as an x-ray technician and was accepted. And I did my two-year course at the Royal Vic. And then I got married. I worked in Ottawa at a private clinic for, oh, maybe four or five months. I don't know exactly how long. And Frank got transferred to Cold Lake, Alberta on a course. So we gave up our apartment and we went to Cole Lake. And in Coal Lake, Alberta, the um, x-ray technician had worked there in the hospital for 20 years without a break. So when she heard that I was an x-ray technician, she found out if I wanted to work. So I did a summer up there at the Bonneville hospital and she had two months off. So
0: that was your heart's desire. That's what your goal was in going to the Royal Victoria Hospital was to get your RT certificate, correct? That's right. So you enjoyed that work and you loved it. Actually, that was what you wanted to do. And then we're going to sort of focus a little bit on meeting Frank. So there's a story behind that. You had actually only one date and on the second date, you were married. So there's a there's a skip in there, and uh, so my understanding of the story, or better yet, that's Frank's version. Well, that is Frank's <laughs> version, like Barney's version, the movie. But so we have Frank's version. Let's hear Karen's version of how, from the time that he escorted you to the naval ball, which was that the first date, or was the first date when you all went to dinner?
1: Uh no, that was probably the 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 first date was when we went to the Naval Ball. There was always a group of us that would hang out at a restaurant, and we used to meet up there and, and talk and stuff like that there. Even when he was home during his training, we had gathered there as a group uh, at the restaurant for pizza and ice cream sundaes, that kind of thing. What was the name of the restaurant? It was always Dutch. Dutch.
0: Was that what you went? Was Dutch or was that I'm the name of the restaurant? It,
1: it was, I can't think of it right now. It'll I'll have back. to fill you in on that one.
0: Yeah, we'll come back to it. But so after, okay, Frank's version is you went to the ball, he took you home, you shook hands, and then you corresponded, I guess, for months between the first and yeah. second date.
1: Yeah, we did a lot of letter writing. I think it was a daily letter writing while he was out west, and then when he went to Bagotville.
0: So that would have been between his mining days and into the military, that phase of his life, correct? Before he was up with Air Canada. And I would venture to say, people don't do that. All right, they text, they tweet, they Facebook, they whatever, but good old fashioned letter writing. That's a skill, that's a dying art. I don't even know if people write in cursive anymore, let alone letter writing, but what a way to get to know somebody.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, he was always very, very nice and very, you know, like he was the type of person that I wanted as a a father for my kids and that kind of thing. He was always good. I never worried about having a a husband that would act out and be miserable or be fighting and that kind of thing.
0: In my observation of the two of you, it's like watching two sweethearts, teenage sweethearts, if that Maybe still in love, still greatly in love. Not to mention, neither of you were hard on the eyes. I mean, yeah, you were a gorgeous couple. He and his strapping uniforms, and you were just the belle of the ball and just gorgeous. And as I recall seeing a wedding picture of you, didn't you get married on Christmas Day?
1: No, it was December the 7th, which is the day that they bombed Hawaii, the anniversary of the day that they bombed Hawaii.
0: Was there a significance
1: uh, in that? we went to visit a friend in Ottawa while he was while he was stationed in Ottawa, and I wanted to visit him, so we went and we stayed with the family friend and uh she said, "Why are you waiting to get married and we said, "Well, you know it's winter time, this that She said, "Get married now so uh we uh Set a date for December the 7th, shocked my mother, of course. Anyway, they all got used to the idea that we're having a wedding in December. They would have preferred it in the summer when all the relatives could attend because we had a lot of relatives in New Brunswick. Frank's family and my mother's family are all from New Brunswick. So was uh, trying to organize a wedding in December wasn't easy. We managed and we had a great time. And
0: not we, to mention uh, that beautiful dress you wore with the white muff.
1: Yeah, that was really gorgeous.
0: So getting to that day, getting getting to the point, uh, so what do you think your mother was more shocked about, the December 7th wedding? Or you getting something in the mail, sort of pre-announcing that Mr. Senichal had fancy intentions for you. So tell us about that story from your side of the desk there.
1: Well, it was kind of a joke for me, getting that, in the mail, but I think my mother was more worried that I was pregnant <laughs> and having a rush wedding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, Frank sort of let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, because you got an insurance letter for the ring that he had decided while he was on base to go to the PX and get. Didn't consult with you. I guess he knew your ring size. Uh, before you even popped the question, you got a letter in the mail saying that you were the beneficiary of the insurance for said ring. The question is, did you confront yeah. him that you were already knew about it or were you pleasantly
1: surprised? No, I, I uh, kept it hidden. Mm-hmm because I didn't want in case it wasn't a ring for me or something <laughs> I didn't want to put him on the spot
0: <laughs> that would be an awkward pause huh
1: so I just left it on, until he until he proposed I I didn't say a thing
0: well that I think that was a very honorable thing to do and I wonder how things would have turned out had you said Frank what's this insurance letter I got on a ring but uh, you you did it quite elegantly so he took you out to dinner and he popped the question now knowing frank today and not knowing him from yesterday or yesteryear did he get down on one knee was he the romantic or did he just say karen we're getting hitched
1: no he we were eating and he took the ring out gave it to me put it on and I guess he said, well, you married me? I don't even remember. I was kind of flustered in the middle of the restaurant and everybody looking at us. (laughs) So I was quite excited, quite happy. Couldn't wait to get home and tell my mother.
0: That the letter was for you. It was the right person, correct? Yeah.
1: So I wonder I wonder what
0: that outcome would have been, A, had you not gotten the letter and just was blindsided with the surprise, would your answer still have said yes, or would you say you had to think about it?
1: Oh, no, I, I, I was definitely madly in love with him, so there was no question about that.
0: And did the restaurant applaud when you said yes?
1: He was the guy for me.
0: He was the guy for you, and still is. Yeah. So the question I always ask my son-in-law. Are you still in love with him as much today as you were when you first met him? Oh, yes. Good.
1: Although I know him better.
0: (laughs) Well, sometimes knowing someone allows us to coexist, I think, in a symbiotic way. After marrying Frank, which, by the way, where did you get married? Was it in Ottawa? No, we got married in Naranda. In Naranda, so back home for both of you. Then you moved to Ottawa. So what was the sequence there? He was in military. He was in the Air Force. So you were an Air Force wife. Did you live on base? Or did you have your own place? And he just moved around? How did that work?
1: No, uh, when we first got married, there was no uh, uh, PMQ available on the base. So we lived in Ottawa, an apartment building. And then from we didn't live there very long, maybe six months. And he got training thing in um coal lake alberta so we packed our stuff up and put it in storage and we went to coal lake alberta and we lived in a, a motel for that summer and that's where i worked in Bonnyville, alberta
0: at the hospital
1: and we were there maybe yeah we lived there for three or four months and then from there we went to bagotville quebec um, we lived there, I think, almost two years. And then we went back to Coal Lake, Alberta, and we lived there. I don't know, funny how you forget, but uh, must be a year that we lived there. And then Frank found out that Air Canada was hiring. Some of his friends had applied, so d- he decided to apply as well. It was better pay and that sort of thing. And uh, first thing you know, he was training with Air Canada in Montreal. He stayed with a friend to, for that course, and I went home with Keeley. Then when he was just about finished the course, he bought a house in Pierrefonds, and we lived there.
0: That's in Quebec?
1: Uh, I think we lived there for five years or so, five or six years. And then we moved to another place called Saint-Lazare, and we lived there for 20-some years, 25, 26 years, and then we moved here.
0: And we'll be back with more of something to talk about
1: here on
0: Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Island Waves. Something to Talk About is a series on everyday people and giving a voice into their lives. This series is dedicated to James David Withers, friend, mentor, author, and poet. And also to Shirley Eckhardt, composer of our theme song, singer-songwriter, and namesake of our program, Something to Talk About. And we're back with more of something to talk about with our guest, Karen Senachal, Entrepreneur, small business owner, tourism B operator, professional woman, community volunteer, wife, mother, and grandmother. I'm so glad you took time out of your very busy day and schedule to be with us today, Karen. Let's talk uh, now a little bit about transitioning into full-time motherhood and staying at home, taking care of uh, not just one, but two children. Uh, this You had Keely, and around the time she was four, I believe your son Greg was, was born.
1: Yeah, Greg, Greg was born in uh, Pierrefonds, which is a suburb of Montreal. He was born in March and in a snowstorm. <laughs> we made our own trail to the hospital. And then when he was three, I think, we, we moved to St. Lazar. So when you worked at Seaforth
0: Medical Center
1: for a few months, that was before Greg was born? That's right. I, I was pregnant for him at the time. I remember I went for the pregnancy test. So whenever I was working around uh, the x-ray where you they're doing the procedures that had radiation uh, where you wouldn't be behind the wall. I always wore a lead apron. That was tough.
0: That that would be challenging.
1: Wearing that lead apron all morning long was heavy. Yeah, I, I, I was just there for as a replacement while they were uh, looking for regular people. And, and it was a long way for me to travel, and I didn't. It wasn't convenient. So when they finally found somebody, I stopped working.
0: And then had Greg and went on maternity leave. And then did you That's right. return to the workforce then, or was it when Air Canada went on strike?
1: Yeah, when Air Canada went on strike, well, it was the pilots that went on strike? So then I got a job at Susie Shear, which was a clothing retailer. I, I was hired in the warehouse for a while. Then they needed somebody in the office, and they came and asked me if I'd be interested i took the job there and from there at that stage greg was probably 4 years old and we were living in saint lazar it was a long way to work and i i call home and they weren't home from school and i'd worry about them worry about them and i said to frank i can't take this anymore i got to i'm quitting <laughs> so i quit work and until they were old enough. And from there, I got a job with the um, Moyers teacher store in one of the big malls in in uh, the West Island. And I worked there for a uh, while. Uh, and then they asked me to be manager. So I worked as a manager for a while. And then uh, I quit.
0: Now, at some point, you also looked after an ailing aunt, a senior aunt who unfortunately had dementia for several years
1: had an aunt living in naranda and her husband passed away she had uh, dementia and we didn't know who was going to look after her so then i said well i can take her back with me to montreal and put her in a nursing home and then just always be checking on her and making sure she was being cared for which became a daily job I think I must have done that for five years. At one stage, I became part of the activities. uh, Well,
0: the head of the crafts committee, maybe?
1: Yeah, sort of like that. It was, uh, you know, to keep the seniors stimulated, to keep them uh, alert. So we'd do activities. There was a lady in charge of that. She was hired to do that, but she seemed to always want help. So I volunteered and gave her a lot of ideas and... Together, we worked out different things to keep the uh, seniors active. And then I became, they, they, at that stage, these nursing homes were being checked by the government to make sure that they were being w- well run, well organized. So I was on that committee. So we, every, we had meetings once a month. If there were any issues, we'd bring them up and so the management would know what was going on and... How to fix
0: it. You were on that executive committee, as it were, to sort of monitor uh, what was going on, provide other services, and expand the scope of what was being done with the seniors. But also, in a way, it was sort of a watchdog for some of the potential neglect that does go on in in long-term care homes or seniors' homes. And unfortunately, once again, yeah, we're under the spotlight for that right here in Prince Edward Island. Mercifully and thankfully, There is a watchdog on it. I was saying one hears horror stories about the different goings on in these various homes, some of which are licensed, not licensed, uh, NGO, GEO. I guess it's a sector that sometimes gets overlooked in the overall scope of things in our busy day to day and in monitoring what's going on. But I always think it's a good thing when there is a task force or a watchdog committee or an overseer, if you will, and I believe they they should be licensed. I know that there's a a big factor and sector of people out there that are getting to that age where they're looking for alternatives to staying at home, or maybe they can't stay at home. So we will all at some point depend on that integrity to make sure that there isn't any neglect going on.
1: Yeah, uh, but even if, if you have that committee or whatever, it doesn't mean that the rules are being followed, or you never know who you're hiring if they just want a job, or if they just want to get it done, they don't care about people, you know, that there has to be some empathy. And a lot of times the employees have no empathy, they could care less, they just want to do the bath, do the thing. And, you know, they're rough. Uh, There's a lot of things that like myself, I I said, I'll never go to a nursing home. It's just if I can help it, I'm not going to go.
0: You're in good company. You can't
1: control everything.
0: No. And I just guess by the nature of the beast, if I may say, things are different now. Uh, People, they work because I think it's not so much a calling like it was when we were growing up, you felt like you were called or leaning toward that profession or that way of life. And so therefore, yes, it was a paycheck. Yes, we all needed to pay bills, but also you loved your work because this was your life's passion. And now I'm finding that it's more, I don't want to use the word entitlement because that's not entirely correct, but people just focus on the fact that they have to pay bills and it's a paycheck and it's a job description and they're not going to go once until above what it says on that paper. Yeah. Fortunately, the focus now or the uh, the tide is shifting to encouraging uh, their senior stay at home initiatives right here in Prince Edward Island that make it more feasible, doable and more attractive for people to stay in their homes. It's less cost. It's more cost effective, I should say, to administer care to those people. I mean, there are people that need to be in a long term care home or in a home where they have somebody that will care for them. And then there's the whole factor of people that are viable up until their 90s. Uh, There's women, or not just women, but people that are driving in their 90s very well, too, uh, with no challenges. So I guess it depends on where you see yourself and where you see yourself going in those sunset years. So she eventually did pass away, and you said it was a bit of a relief. And I'm guessing it was not pleasant for you, and it was hard on you to see her decline due to the dementia.
1: She was already, you know, at, 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 at the very bottom. She didn't talk. She didn't uh, elaborate. She liked going out. And that's what I I used to do. I used to take her either back to my house or take her to a shopping mall or a, a place where there was, um, in St. Anne Bellevue, they had a canal uh, with all kinds of boats coming up and down. And we used to watch the boats and have something to eat and, you know, that kind of thing. I also was like her, she had brothers and sisters, so I was sort of taking their place, but they were like on my case to make sure I was doing my job
0: which you were not getting paid you know for I mean? of course oh yes absolutely yeah i i do quite understand that yeah. so they didn't want to do it but they wanted to make sure that what they wanted done or thought should be done their expectation was being done by you though you were doing it out of the kindness of your heart and your love for your yeah. aunt so after the nursing yeah. home and she passed did you then leave that was in montreal correct that's right right and then uh, Saint so Right. So now the children are growing up. I want to circle back around to a comment that you made in your pre-interview when you talked about something that your father-in-law said a few years after your daughter's birth. Your father-in-law mentioned that you should have a son to carry the family name. And what were your feelings on that matter?
1: I found motherhood very difficult. I said, that was it. One kid, that was fine with me. (laughs) Then I got the pressure that we had to have the The family name carried on. Anyway, we ended up with Greg, which was the best thing ever. Don't regret it a bit.
0: (laughs) No, never. And you, as a mom and a grandmother, you could probably concur that when you have the first child, you think you're so in love with this child. Your heart is exponentially full of love. And then you have the second one. And I think there's a bit of a you know a self-doubt like will i be able to love this other child and then the child comes and your heart just grows bigger and and the love is just incredible children are the gift i always say and the grandchildren are the cherry on top and you have two children and you have is it five grandchildren or four no
1: we have four four right yeah two girls and two boys right and they're all doing quite well Each family is one of each
0: and they're all doing quite well. As a matter of fact, you have a budding yes, star doing very in the family. Well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you've got some in university, I believe. You've got one that's a budding actress and very, a film producer. Very happy
1: with the way they're <laughs> yeah, she's she's quite quite the girl. She likes to uh, do these little videos and, and of course the the school helps quite a bit with encouraging that kind of thing as well i think that's probably how she got started
0: and as i recall recently she produced a video on your brother-in-law his origins who he was adopted along with frank i believe she did something on his story uh when he found his family he reunited with his birth family i believe or some of them she won an award a big award in halifax and then Was submitted into the international competition. So tell us about that.
1: The first one was, uh, I think it was a Canadian filmmaker, youth filmmaker award that she got. The second one was an honorable mention in the U.S. for her video.
0: That's that's quite an accomplishment. And she's how old? She's 14. My goodness, my goodness, that is that is quite an accomplishment for a 14-year-old. And do you think that's what she'll be wanting to do in her future?
1: I have no idea what she wants to do yet. I don't think she does either.
0: Well, I don't think anybody uh, does at 14.
1: (laughs) She's been an extra in a couple of films. She, um, you know, she's getting to see the background and that idea. So where it goes from here, I have no idea.
0: Well, that's good. And the best piece of advice I can offer would be, Get her a good agent or sick Frank, you know put her Frank with her every time she goes or before she signs a contract to just look over her shoulder. It can be a cruel industry, but it's a very rewarding one. Okay, we're gonna circle around circle back around to when yeah. Frank was traveling with Air Canada as a pilot. How did you manage being not a single mother of two, but sort of like that because he was away and as I understood, it wasn't always coming back home at the end of the day for dinner. It was sometimes taking him away three, four days at a time or weeks at a time, which pretty much left you in charge as the domestic goddess of the Senegal compound, raising two children.
1: How was that? It was hard at times. You got used to it, you know, like you could pretty well do anything and everything yourself didn't have to depend on a man to be there for stuff you had to make your own decisions and that was a when, when you finally got the hang of it there was no problem to it everything was on your own shoulders
0: we were born into a generation when women were hanging up their aprons and proverbially bringing home the bacon or as the saying would go, I bring home the bacon, I cook it and clean up after it. And you did all those things because you were a professional woman. You were raising two children on your own. And I don't mean that in in anything disruptive to the the household or to the marriage, but the, the logistics of it were Frank wasn't a nine to five, I'll be home for dinner, dear. You know, it wasn't that type of profession for him. So did you feel as though The fact that you were the the pilot or the captain or the engineer of this home and family, did you feel that you were cheated out of, you know, the recognition that most women that were were hanging up the apron and going into an office or into some um, competitive field with men, did you feel remiss about that or did you have any, what were your feelings on that?
1: I didn't really feel because of that but you know with your stay-at-home mom if you were into a gathering where people were talking about their careers and discussing that kind of thing you kind of felt like nothing to say well I'm a mom I'm a stay-at-home mom you got kind of dropped out of the conversation very fast you do lose a bit of identity you know why why a career wins over motherhood i don't know but for some people it's a in at a certain stage it might be a downer
0: do you do you think that that's the case now? Because I think women, it's a little different for women now. It's, it's an attitude, it's a genre, and well, with remote working at home, we're seeing more and more women in the fields that necessarily were not occupied by women or where women were tokens. And the fact that they can work out of the home, well, still wear the apron, still bring home the bacon, still cook the bacon, and still manage a career and a family and a home. Did we do ourselves a good thing or did we just pile it on? And was the word multitasking a good thing? Uh, or or was, it our, was it a downfall? Did something detract from our roles as mothers and women when we did go into the competitive I, I field? I
1: think competitive fields is a different story altogether. Women nowadays don't feel like for a family to function well, that they have to stay home. They feel like they can multitask. Uh, Sometimes it's a little bit too much for some people. I think where women are finding it very difficult now is in these non-traditional jobs where they're being accepted in their roles that were traditionally held by men. They're finding that very difficult. And I found just when I moved to the island, that if you're a female and you say, well, you know, what about this or what about that? They will say, well, uh, let me speak to your husband or if you call about something, well, they want to speak to your husband. And do you think I that's don't know if the... you've experienced that oh. yourself?
0: Or... <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I could tell you stories, especially being a single woman without a husband. <laughs> so you can just imagine for the first little bit. And I was married for twenty-five years, but for the first, I'd say the first ten that I was not married, it, people looked at me like I was some alien or a stranger. Or particularly since we live in rural PEI, uh, it was more like are you still here? Or, oh, are you back? And I'd say, no, I live here all the time. And they they kind of look at you a little funny, like, uh, well, who does your shoveling? Who takes out the trash? And they don't realize it, that as human beings, uh, if you put your mind to it, you could do it. And sometimes you don't have a choice, you have to do it. So going back to that statement, Mm -hmm. Karen, do you think that it's a generational thing? And today's men may be a little bit more enlightened or a little more accepting of the fact that women are capable of doing equal things or making decisions or even taking a wrench to a pipe or something if the case may be
1: they're slowly learning, you know, as much as I like, as much as I would like uh, somebody else to do some jobs often uh, it's left up to you. So you have to do it. When we signed the contract for this house, it was to include the um, plastic sheeting underneath the shingles of the roof. I got a call from Frank said saying that they've decided they're not putting that sheeting underneath the shingles. I said, it's part of our contract. They should be doing it. So he said, I know, but he says, they said, they're not doing it. We don't need it. So I called the contractor and I said, that's part of our contract. We want that included. He says, you go pick out the lighting and leave the roof to the expert. So about... Five years later, we had to redo a whole new roof. Did
0: you feel as though you were being dismissed and that you couldn't get your way? Or what would have happened if you said, no, it's in my contract. I want it. Because obviously you were right.
1: Well, yeah. And then on top of that, he had said, if you you don't like us doing the job, we'll just quit. So here I am in the middle of a house build. What am I going to do? I have all these men saying they know better. So I just threw in the towel.
0: I've been there. I've done that. And I've regretted it. And sometimes you don't get the chance to say, I told you so, or I was right. Unfortunately, you just have to deal with the remedial, I would guess, rather than what you knew would have been done correctly.
1: That's right. There's a lot of things that that come up with different things like that, where they, uh, they refer to the man rather than the the female. So I, I I think that women on the island who are on their own must have it pretty tough trying to get what they want.
0: Well, we get called a lot of colorful names, that's for sure. Circling back when you were in Quebec, you guys yeah. moved out of Quebec because of the politics. You said it was not a healthy environment. Uh, I'm not sure what year that was. Elaborate on that, Karen.
1: Well, I lived, brought up in Quebec, and then they had that FLQ crisis where the the French speaking people were fighting for their rights. But after they got their rights, which they deserved. They went overboard, I think. So everything had to be French. There was no bilingualism for business, for most anything. Couldn't have English signs. It would build up real bad, and then after a while, it would calm down. And then you think, oh, yeah, everything's good now. And then it would build back up, and then it would constant thing where it was being shoved in your face. And finally, I said, why don't we move somewhere where we're more comfortable we don't have to be obliged to to speak a certain language uh, we can put a sign in front of our house we don't have doesn't have to be bilingual or anything like that you just felt like it was being shoved in your face all the time so we decided you know, it's more comfortable to live in that uh, in another situation than it is in that situation. So we started looking around for another place to live. Frank was coming up to retirement, so we looked in BC, we looked in Alberta, uh, we looked in um, Halifax and New Brunswick or Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, and finally we saw a place here on the internet, on, and we went to look it up. It was already it already had uh, a bid on it. So they the agent took us to other places, couldn't find anything that we were really wanting. So then um, we went home and just let things go. And then one day Frank was on the internet, Spud Isle Realty, <laughs> he found this property. So we called and we made an appointment and we came down with our camping gear and the real estate agent there was here was really good and she took us to see this property plus we went to all almost all the way up to summerside and she showed us places around rustico and everywhere but we kept coming back to this property and we liked it, it kind of reminded me of noranda we have we always had a cottage in noranda every time i went down one of the the trails around here, I kept thinking of that place. And I said, I, I, I think we'll try and get this place So. We kept at it and we got it. Frank stayed in the farmhouse in the springtime when the house was being, our house was being built. I came down a couple times. He was around here most of the time while I was packing up in St. Lazare and trying to sell our house in St. Lazare. So I got everything all packed up just as the house was ready. We moved in here in December of 2000, 2000? I think, Yeah, 2000, 2000 or 2001.
0: 2001 I think. Right he he uh, retired in in 2000. I remember thinking that because he wasn't yeah, flying Yeah, but
1: I think we moved in in 2000
0: or 2001. So uh revisiting the farmhouse is is uh quite the piece of architecture. Is that house not about 100 years old, the farmhouse?
1: Yeah, it's over 100 years old now.
0: You refurbished it, or was it exactly the way you see it now? Or did it looks like I see a lot of Karen no, touch in there. Yeah, we,
1: uh, we did a lot of renovations. Uh, when we moved from St. Lazar, we brought everything with us. So some went into the farmhouse and some came in here. We bought new furniture for here. And uh, because we had gone around looking around say, uh, PEI, and at that time, there wasn't too much choice for buying furniture. And we really liked this um, store in Montreal called Prillo's. And we went there, and we picked out all that we wanted, told them to deliver it when we were ready with the moving truck. So we got all set up with our uh, move and Prillos came in with the truckload of furniture and they just were transferring it from one truck to the other truck. The driver said, the other truck will be there, we'll be here in an hour. Frank said, the other truck? He says, yeah, we couldn't fit everything in one truck. So Frank had to go and find another U-Haul at the last minute. <laughs> and he had to go a long way to get it. It was uh, the other side of Montreal before we, f- we found a U-Haul that we could rent. And then we had to have another driver. So one of our friends volunteered to drive the other truck. So we had quite a time getting down here, but we made it.
0: So did you both live in the uh, farmhouse while the house was being built or did you come after the main house was being built? And then follow up question to that is who designed that beautiful house there overlooking uh, Mink Basin in the back?
1: Well, Frank was the one that lived in in the farmhouse the most. I came down twice, I think, two or three times. And then uh, the design was I put down ideas and sorry, I don't remember the name of the uh, the architect, but uh, at that time called uh, the the Duet Center in in Charlottetown had an architect. He took my ideas and he designed the
0: house from from your mouth to his ears to his hands yeah Uh, yeah okay it's a beautiful home and it's architecturally a wonder so Um,
1: together uh, I always wanted a, a separate office for my massage business and And then one of my cousins mentioned that you should have a private door that doesn't go through your house. So uh, people aren't going through your house to get to your massage room. So I thought that was a good idea. So we, we designed that one time when I was looking at model homes, I saw a house that had the main office right off the front door. And I thought that was a good idea in our other house, we had a living room and a family room. So most time, you're only in family room. So I said, it's no use having two rooms, we'll just have one big room. And we did that. And then I didn't, I was always worried that if Frank passed away, how would I manage to stay here? So <laughs> I said, well, we'll have each bedroom have their own bathroom in that way that if I need to have an income, because he wasn't here, we could have, I could run a B&B, that kind of was the all the reasons how our house ended up the way it is.
0: Do you foresee that maybe with Frank still in the picture, that you would perhaps do that in the next year or two and have an Airbnb or not an Airbnb, but a bed and breakfast uh, where you reside resided on the premises, but you certain months of the year, like during tourism season, you know, ran it as a, a, as a bed and breakfast. But we'll we'll still keep Frank here with us just to expand that because you did say each bedroom has its own bathroom. And I mean, you've got a giant size uh, kitchen and and dining room so would that be a possibility that you foresee
1: when we first moved here my sister-in-law wanted to come with her friends to golf so we had a little experiment of that found out that that wasn't for us the girls the girls of course were in a a party mood, and they'd be going to bed at three in the morning and uh, partying. And uh, no, it, it just was not what we had hoped would be a bnB and b So I said to Frank, it's easier just to rent the farmhouse as a cottage. They do their own thing, whatever they want to do. We just go in and clean up at the end. Speaking
0: of the cottage, the cottage is quite uh, the luxury spot. It is a hundred-year-old plus facility and home, but it's quite luxurious. And what you offer there. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? First of all, you call it what? Mink Basin Cottage. You want to tell us a little bit about the history of it and some of the renovations you did and and what your guests uh, enjoy once they are booking there, which you stay pretty steadily booked even longer than shoulder season this year. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: When we first went in there, there was orange shag carpet in the living room. And up the stairway, uh, there was a wood stove in the kitchen, a nice old wood stove. The floors were all—they um, giving away. They had big slumps in them, big dips, and we never really thought much of it. We we just said, you know, it'll when Frank is working at the barn or we're doing something around there, we'll just have a place to use as a bathroom. And then uh, we decided we'll, we'll clean it up a little bit. And we took out all the carpeting and uh, there was paneling on the walls. We painted the paneling. And bit by bit, we, we, we took and we made, it was a long narrow living room and we shortened it and made the bedroom that was at the back larger, bit by bit, we just kept doing different things. Frank needed to get permit to have the septic system fixed, and they wouldn't give us a permit because they said can't have two septic systems on the same property. And he explained to them that there were there was there's a lot of distance between the two property. Couldn't convince them. So the guy said the only way you could get that done would be to set up the farmhouse as a business. So Frank said, okay, it's a business. So we got the permit to fix the septic system.
0: And we'll be back with more of something to talk about here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. This episode of Something to Talk About is supported by Mink Basin Cottage, located in beautiful Cambridge, Prince Edward Island. Enjoy a beautiful century old four bedroom home with all the luxuries required for a wonderful island comfortable vacation. Enjoy the screen gazebo in the evening while you toast marshmallows in the fire pit or enjoy a wonderful barbecue. Close to Panama Island Beach, Book your staycation or vacation at Mink Basin Cottage in beautiful Prince Edward Island. You can book your stay in Verbo. You are listening to Something to Talk About on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. And we're back with more of something to talk about here on Island Waves with today's guest, Karen Sinichal.
1: The fact that it's so close to Pamir Island is wonderful because they can go and enjoy the beach and they don't have to drive a long way to get to a, a beautiful beach.
0: And it's just a beautiful setting. Uh, I can imagine just sitting there on the porch and it's such a pastoral setting there and serene and quiet and you don't have the bright lights of the city. So I would imagine it's a it's a very popular place for people to come from from all over. Do you have is it just Canadian people that come or do you find that people come from other countries? You're you're listed with Verbo and then also with Prince Edward Island Tourism Board with all their uh, mass media points. East Coastal Drive, I believe it is.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah.
0: So tell us about the type of person, the type of clientele that would, say, for example, phone you up. Are they families? Are they singles? Or I know you've had uh, quite a plethora of people that have stayed there for the last, what, several years at this point.
1: We get a lot of people from the U.S. all the way from L.A., We've had people, but I would say most of the people are uh, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Um, we, we've had them from Alberta and that too, but but mostly, uh, mostly, you know, the provinces that are close by. Not too long of a drive for them to come over for a few days and enjoy the island or or a lot of times they'll come over for one of the big concerts
0: like Cavendish for Mm. example where you book solid for that yeah
1: and then um, it's it's mostly families because they can bring grandma and you know they can take turns looking after the kids and each have a day in the city or something like that without uh, you know having to put up with crying or whining. I always have a little plastic swimming pool, too, that the the real small kids can play in. Uh, I have toys for them to play with. So it's really funny when you when they come and you show them where the toys are. And oh, my goodness, they're just they just go crazy.
0: (laughs) There's something about children when they walk into a room, even if they have the same identical toys, but they walk into a room and they're like, wow, you know, uh, I often, yeah. uh, after having three of my own, I said to my children, I said, you know, they don't even play with half the things they have. You might as well just box them up and wrap them up and give them to them again as gifts. They won't know. They'll think they're new. But of course, you, <laughs> you never get away with that. It's a multi-generational Uh, place for people to enjoy fair to say
1: that's right yeah
0: yeah and you've had quite a season this past year coming off the heels of COVID which we'll talk about in a little bit you've had quite a season that uh, not only went into shoulder season but went into December if I recall
1: somebody come and stay for Christmas
0: which you just generally the season tourism used to end end of August beginning of September then we called it shoulder season and extended that to the end of September. Then we called it shoulder season part two and extended it to uh, the end of October. And now it just seems like um, tourism is a year round event here.
1: It's, it's slowly happening. What happens too with a house like ours, you know, like if there's a death in the family or a wedding or something like that, when the family comes home, they, there's not enough place for everybody. So they rent. A place like ours where, you know, it has four bedrooms. So a lot of the family can stay in one place together. Uh, It's almost like a family reunion as well.
0: I want to revisit your massage business. Where was it that you first decided that that's something you wanted to pursue? And I think you took a course in West Island in kinetic Swedish massage therapy to start. Did you know that that was your end product that you wanted to get into that? line of work? Or did you just do it for your own self satisfaction? I mean, what was your process on that?
1: Yeah, it was I just did it on a whim for my own satisfaction. And then uh, as you're taking the course, you know, they're telling you, well, you know, you need experience, you need to advertise and massage people and then come back and describe your it's sort of like doing a stage for you have to get used to doing it on other people with different kinds of problems so you uh first thing you know in saint Lazare, i had my dining room switched to a massage room <laughs> So people would come, and uh, I advertised uh, at a couple of places. So I got used to doing massage, but you know, once again, I had the language problem. I I don't know why in all these years I've never become bilingual. It bothers me, especially now that Frank found out that he found his real family. He was adopted, and he found his real family, and they're all French-speaking. And I think, why didn't I learn how to speak French? But anyway, uh, that was another thing that, that was a hold-up with my business, was being able to talk the talk massage with uh, the clients it's hard for me to believe because
0: I've always seen you as being very fluent in French with your postings and I thought my goodness uh, you know she probably that was her first language and English might have been second because growing up in Quebec you would have thought that it was uh, almost like I said something that you would do as your first language because you did you you were born and raised in Quebec so how did you circumvent that uh, was it because it was not two official languages at that time?
1: In the beginning, Ruan Miranda was, I'd say, three quarters English. So even though I played with French kids, it seemed like it was easier for them to speak English than for me to speak French. So even if I tried, <laughs> they would switch to English. So I, I I just, you know, never had the real opportunity to, to speak it. On, and, and I think it was only in latter years, like I said, when I was in my uh, maybe 30s, that French became very important and and that's when, you know, my kids were growing up and I put them in French school. Keely went to French school in grade 4 and Greg was in um what they call pre-maternelle, sort of like a pre-kindergarten school at 4 years old. So, the, both kids are completely bilingual. Mom is is a struggling French speaking person.
0: <laughs> I think you do better than I do. All my Grandchildren are all French-speaking because in school it's uh, it's a requirement. But I myself, uh, when I try to dabble, I find that. I get the, the the shake of the head like, please don't.
1: <laughs> you haven't heard me yet.
0: <laughs> so going back to your massage business, that started at West Island, and then you took additional courses in massage, Reiki, Quantum Touch, Hot Stone Massage, Tissue Release. So you really moved on up and then opened yeah. up this wonderful business but here. One
1: thing, one thing followed the other, you know, like you wanted to learn as much as you could. I had a good friend in massage I met her through the course and she was always encouraging well she said I'm going to take this course she said why don't you take the course too first thing you know we're both doing uh, these courses and then now she's retired and well she didn't stick with massage. She had to follow a, a better paying job. She'd keep the massage as a compliment, I guess, to it. But um, lately, she's gone into doing Traeger courses. She's retired from her other job, and she's taking Traeger now. What is so that? Traeger is kind of like a vibration type of massage. Uh, I, I don't know everything about it. She really likes it. And so it's supposed to help people release tension a lot easier than than the massage or or you do it in the combination with the massage. I don't know everything about it. She was the one that got me going into all the different things.
0: and the name of your I don't want to call it a massage parlor. That Frank would have a, a picnic with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so massage it's call- business
1: your massage funny.
0: business, yeah.
1: I call it fox glove massage. Yes.
0: And in beautiful Cambridge at a wonderful facility. I call her the the woman with the ten million dollar hands. I still think you should get uh, Lords of London should insure your hands. They're magical. <laughs> We just came through a very difficult corridor, Karen, for all of us uh, from the early part of 2020 till well, now. We were given what we'd say we were dealt a hand of cards that none of us expected to ever live long enough to see. And that was that we lived through a pandemic called COVID. How did that affect you personally in your life and your marriage and your businesses? What's your comment on that now that we're, we're not quite on the other side, but we're hopefully getting there? or getting to the new normal?
1: I can't say it bothered me that much. I wore wore my mask and I still wear my mask as often as I can. And I would say in the last two years, they were the best two years health wise because I didn't catch a whole lot of colds. I was always feeling good. That part, no problem at all. I did lose business because at the beginning everything was shut down and then some people, um, when I started back up, found that I insisted they still wear a mask, they, and I, I did as well. So they, they found that was hard, and I, I don't blame them because who likes to be laying face down with a mask on? I did lose some business there. Other than that, I, I'd say, you know, not getting to see family was a little hard, but nothing that I couldn't live with. To me, it was relaxing.
0: There was a certain serenity to it. And it was like misery loves company, because I think we're I think we're all in the time of our life where we choose and we're very selective about our energy and what we what we're willing to give out and and our externalization of our lives, you know, I mean, we have, suffice it to say, we've come to a point in our lives where we're we're happy. Uh, Mary Walsh talks about that. She says, as we get older, we, we get happier or content or resigned. Uh, not cynical, but uh, yeah, I think we all kind of got through it. It was a little ingratiating at the time. I know I didn't go through as much makeup or have to get new clothes. In fact, when I go through my closet, I'm surprised that, that I said, oh, wow, I have that. I forgot, you know, because we lived in, uh, <laughs> we lived in sweatpants and pajamas and flannels and, you know, did, didn't get much further than uh, than our own driveway. So it for some, it was yeah, very hard.
1: I, I didn't find it hard at all. You know, I still had to cut grass. I still had to blow snow. Uh,
0: Absolutely. <laughs> it
1: was the same, same old routine. It was just, um, you know, you didn't uh, dine out as much at first. We didn't uh, visit as much, but, you know, I got time to watch all the TV shows I wanted mm-hmm. to watch and Read read
0: catch up on things I
1: do actually I do most of my reading at night I don't read too much during the day it's my sleeping pill so you read read two or three pages and I'm out like a light
0: I uh, remember thinking that I got so many more projects done around the house uh, rooms appropriated or reappropriated or reassigned and that was nice because when we're on the run when we're on the fly you know by the time you get back you're tired so uh, that was kind of nice and uh, I certainly did not mind the masking or the level of respect that everybody seemed to be giving one another you know the space in the in the grocery store I like the arrows I mean I still like the. I wish they'd still have the arrows and it was kind of nice with the protective shields and quite frankly and I don't I should knock wood but I don't want to make a noise here it was nice not having the flu and everything that the wind was blowing in and what I'm seeing now and especially with the young children is they're they're picking up everything now because we're not masking and we're not being as protective and maybe we're not washing our hands as much so the kids are always coming home it seems like weekly with something and you feel like you want to just put this invisible shield around you to protect you or (laughs) God forbid somebody coughs or sneezes while you're at the grocery store, you kind of jump and give them a look. I guess uh, I hate to use that expression, it is what it is, but we got through it. We're not entirely through with it. I guess it's just like anything else, like the flu or measles or shingles or anything. It's... It's going to be a, a factor of, of humanity.
1: The new way. Becoming a pincushion is the new way. <laughs> ah,
0: we all not even speak of that. I think it's going to be like the annual flu shot. And in fact, I've heard that they're going to combine them. So so who knows? But being a yeah. pincushion is very much uh, exactly what I think we we're all becoming. Just as we're getting through the highlights of, of covid Breathing out a little bit, so to speak, still wearing the masks, uh, we get hit with two hurricane, well, the Hurricane Dorian was in 2019, and now we have Hurricane Fiona, which to me pecked twice the punch of Dorian, which we just had in September. Let's talk about that.
1: Okay, When it, when it hit, we had everything put away, everything buckled down. I was going past the dining room, it was raining pretty hard then, and I see the cat is licking, eating something in the dining room and what kind of food does she have there? So I go over to look and here's a whole bunch of water. And our windows, although they were closed, they weren't locked down. And the water was just pouring in. I spent three quarters of the night mopping up water, taking all the towels I could and sopping it up. And the next day our niece was coming and she was going to be staying in the farmhouse. So she had, the house, she and her family had the house, and uh, it has a generator. They were all set up, we have a generator here, but you know, it can only run so many hours, and then you had to stop it, fill it up with gas, and hope that everything is good for another few hours, and then we're overnight, and then come back in the morning and, and start it up again. So we were out of power at least 18 days, and all that time, we thought our generator was powering our two deep freezes. I opened up the deep freeze one day after the 18 days and found out everything was melted and smelling to high heaven. So cleaned out that. So there was a lesson there from Fiona I'm down to one deep freeze and uh, I said, you know, why are we stockpiling? We're only two people. Why are we stockpiling all this food? Uh, it, that's another lesson learned there. We've lost a lot of trees. We had to redo the roof on the gazebo at the uh, farmhouse. We have another gazebo that's down by one of the streams and it had an outdoor toilet with one of those uh, composting toilets it was crushed it was down frank and i just got that road cleared a few days ago before the last storm there and so hopefully we'll soon be able to go and clean up that mess but we have 57 acres of land and i'd say three quarters of it the trees are down so we have uh a lot of work ahead of us. We're trying to figure out where to go from here. There's a guy that's gonna come in the spring, give us a quote for the trees. Like, because we have a lot of water around our property, two streams, well actually three streams, and then the basin. So they're not allowed to cut trees along the edge of the waterways which is a silly rule because these big trees come down and they take away three quarters of your land the island is surrounded by tide water and they don't realize that that water coming and going and coming and going is wearing the bank away so that if you have a tree that toppled over that ground is all loose and that's going to just take away more land they have to learned that trees of a certain height should be cut to save the land but it'll take time for that but anyway right now I I'm just overwhelmed with all the work that's going to have to take place here in the spring.
0: It's daunting. It's overwhelming and on top of it I've heard it said I think it was the premier said that there's a five-year overall plan before we can get the full cleanup done between the amount of work the amount of destruction. The the people that are in the trades that are doing this work, this clean up the arborists and, and you know, the the people from forestry, they're they're working night and day in dealing with this. I know from over here I've been through two layers of it, what insurance will do, what the province will do, what the Red Cross will do, and then there's the forest enhancement, and it's it's just keeping up on what's being done, what still needs to be done, and then where you go to to, to get it done. It's, uh, it's, it's overwhelming.
1: Well, we're all at an age, too, that's not feasible to get out there and work steady all day cutting trees.
0: <laughs> no, but correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. I think, well, so Fiona came on September 24th. I know from September 25th until yesterday. It's been a daily, daily event of, of some sort of level of cleanup or, or trees. And to be honest with you, I, I found it not only overwhelming in the beginning, when I woke up that Sunday, and from where my house is, all the way down my lane, it was nothing but a massive pileup of trees. I couldn't get up over it, under it, side of it, and fortunately, I have wonderful neighbors, and I could hear their chainsaws. And we met in the middle, and it was an all-day affair just to clear a pathway to get out. And then yeah. you, you look around, and it looks like bombs went off. You know, what was beautiful groves of trees and stands of trees are now just twisted w- with such fierce aggressiveness of this this hurricane. It was. Um, it's sad. I've never looked so much forward to having snow just to cover it up and where I didn't have to see it.
1: <laughs> well, you know, sad as it is, you got to think of those poor people in, in Syria and Turkey. There were all that cement and everything down and, uh, and people still buried underneath. And we came off pretty good. We're, we're lucky the way we came out.
0: Absolutely. We We have a lot to be thankful for. And, you know, cleanup, we'll get to it. Trees
1: are easier to move than cement
0: with people under them.
1: The only
0: saving grace I had in the first few days and weeks was as I would walk up and down my driveway. and Mind you, like I said, it was a daily event of having people here, clearing trees, cutting trees, moving wood. And it was was very depressing. But I would see these little new growths of trees coming up where there was wonderful hundred-year-old trees. And I guess I thought, well... (laughs) make way for the old, for the new. What's that saying? Trees that will, you know, we're, we're raising trees of which shade we will never enjoy. But that's the way it goes.
1: All I do is I look there and I say, ooh, lumber. <laughs> we could... Can- <laughs> I could make a shed.
0: Ah, see, I don't I could have. make a garage. <laughs> I don't have that vision. I keep thinking I should call uh, the people over there at the at the mill here and say, "Hey, can we do a deal? I, I could use a garage if you you know I'll give you the wood." From what I understand, yesterday everybody's filled up to the brim. That we've everybody that we know has filled their boots with the wood Uh, that was kind of my condition when the province came I was like where's this wood going can you donate it to somebody that really needs it and I think they looked at me like I was either an idealist or a fool because they're thinking lady (laughs) a lot of people aren't burning wood we now have heat pumps. Everybody that needs wood has it for the next three years. So I think I think we went from a market of because I remember in the late summer when everybody's getting and putting up their wood that prices were high and wood was scarce. And then September 24th came and now we've got a glut of wood. Yeah. (laughs) And nowhere to put it. (laughs) Moving forward, Karen, you and Frank uh, were very instrumental in rekindling the spirit, if you will, of Cambridge Hall. Let's talk that, about that a little bit.
1: Well, we, we got involved kind of by accident. Um, one of the girls that wa- was the new president of the hall, unfortunately got cancer. And she came to Frank and said, while I'm having my treatment, would you take over the running of the hall? So Frank said, sure. Uh, while he was in that position, the government came out with grants to keep the, the old hall halls from closing, they would offer a grant for renovations or additions or whatever. He applied for it and he got the renovation and we had the the back hall added to the Cambridge Hall and we had the kitchen renovated to a point. And then we had the hall itself painted. There were two small bathrooms. And I mean really small. You could hardly turn around in them. They were so small. So I said to Frank, well, while you're at it, why don't you just make one bathroom that's big enough for a wheelchair and uh, people might have to wait longer to go to the bathroom, but at least it's one that you can move in. So that's what they did there. It just went on from there. We just ended up trying to raise money to keep the hall going and one of the grants that was offered was if you had a seniors club so we formed a seniors club most of this was done by frank i'm just the the big mouth behind it
0: some people would call that the ceo
1: somebody's got to be in charge Karen behind every
0: good man is a better woman (laughs) that's right and so the man just stays in front to you know to shield us from all the bs you know so yeah wait isn't there again I I love sayings but isn't uh heavy is the hand that that rocks the cradle or powerful is the hand that rocks the cradle so uh yeah Mm yeah
1: so anyway uh I I help with running the Cayleys or running the seniors club. Uh, You might say, keep him on his toes. And uh, he does all the rest. But, uh, yeah, the the hall, I imagine, would have shut down if it wasn't... our involvement. Um, it was the locals who, who got it up and going to start off with because it wasn't being used, it was closed down and it was, being, uh, it was uh, falling apart. So with all these renovations and stuff like that, it's still running. So we've been here 20 some years and uh, all is still going.
0: Going strong and I'd venture to say that had you guys not stepped in to do all that, including the renovations, the grants, the expansions, uh, the updates, that hall would not be standing today.
1: Well, probably not, because the back wall, when they started to renovate, the back wall was all rotten. One time uh, after a rental in the hall part, the floor caved in. So uh, Gary McClure and uh, Jim uh, worked on putting beams underneath and securing it. Both of them were small enough to get in there (laughs) under the stage and and work on it frank frank couldn't fit <laughs>
0: we talked about that was that because there was too much fierce step dancing going on and it just they went right through the floor or what
1: yeah uh, could have been the floor hadn't uh, broken but it was the the beams the underneath support beams
0: yeah. yeah and it's a so, beautiful hall uh,
1: hanging in there you know they've They've added uh, heat pumps, and they've added the Generac, and it's become a warming, warming center, center mm-hmm. and it, it, it's come a long way.
0: We've had computer classes, art classes. Uh, we did a kind of a faux curling, if you will, one one winter. I remember that. I remember that was my introduction into curling. And I'd realized that my temperament was just not there for it. I did it with earnest. And I wanted to be first and then realized that as much skill and craft as you get to push that stone, the object of the last person is to knock it out. And it just made my blood boil. And I thought this is not a good fit for me. (laughs) Not a sport that, um, yeah, it's a good
1: job. You're not playing croquet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) possibly so possibly so so the the hall is that's about a hundred year old building or more the architecture yeah
1: yeah yeah. but there was an old school right there I think maybe in the parking lot at one time that was the Cambridge school and uh, beside that was um, called that a welding place that did welding and I don't know what else they did but work. Do you
0: foresee that with this new year, 2023, and again, getting things sort of back to some sense of normalcy, do you see that there will be a lot of events that will be hosted there and that you'll be doing again to keep the hall sustainable? Or what's, what do you foresee in the future for the hall?
1: Well, I really liked it when we had uh concert, you know, that kind of thing, Kaylee's. I think Frank finds it a lot of work. I think, The entertainers now are not as open to doing it for free, so I don't know if that's uh, feasible in the future. Frank is going to try and organize an auction, so we'll see how that goes, but... You know, with all the costs of heating and electricity and that kind of thing, we have to come up with some kind of money raisers. So I hope we can do more things there.
0: Fundraising is always a very daunting experience, and sometimes all intentions being good and forming committees and volunteers when you depend on volunteerism sometimes falls heavily on the shoulders of the ones that are left standing to organize it. That can be a little disheartening sometimes yeah you wonder why you do it suffice it to say that cambridge hall was the mecca was the place back i'd say early 20th century for the for the area and wasn't it yeah. sort of your vision that it sort of is still a come together place again if we didn't have the two years of of covid cautions and and limitations you know that would have probably evolved into more activity there. I know you guys rented out for weddings and family reunions and breakfasts and dinners and things like that. And so it could very well return to a Mecca.
1: I've never lived anywhere that people did that like The island does. If the kids have a birthday party, they rent the hall. If they have a baby shower, they rent Mm -hmm. the hall. This was always done in other places where I lived before in people's homes. So I'm always amazed at how uh, open uh, people are to using the hall for those events, which is good for us. It helps to pay some of the expenses, although it costs to rent too.
0: It makes it more self-sustainable to be able to yeah. pay the lights, to pay the, the high-speed internet, to pay for the propane for the Generac. But it's also very nominally priced compared to some facilities. And so I'm, I'm wondering if with things, you know, with tourism increasing, with things coming back to some some middle line of normalcy, again, maybe not going back to the way things were, if people won't be doing that again, I think there's something nice about going to a community hall there. It's familiar, it's warm, it's beautiful, it's not in somebody's house, it's not in a restaurant. So perhaps that day will come again. The question is, is, do you two want to be the ones responsible for all of that? No. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
1: No, you know, like you have to, Frank has to maintain the parking lot. He has to keep doing the snow removal. We we share cutting the grass around there because we, we do the big field on, on the far side of the building as well as by the parking lot. So it means going up there with the, the small lawnmower and the big lawnmower, the big tractor, and we both cut grass. The hall maintenance, you know, the washing of the floors and the bathroom and the the backhaul and decorating for the different seasons, all that kind of stuff. It's time-consuming when you have other things to do.
0: Absolutely, and particularly when you're not getting paid for it and it's a volunteer labor of love. I think sometimes it's underappreciated as well.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's underappreciated, but... There's nobody popping
0: up to help. Well, well, that's what I mean. There's everybody likes to enjoy it. I know we come in and we see the tables are all set and the hall is decorated. And then and I have to be honest, I've been guilty of that, too. We get done with our lunch or we get done with our art class and then we get up and leave and we forget that there's not a there's not a paid provincial staff that's going to come in here and put everything back or reset it or, or even I've mopped that floor. So I know there's nobody else at the end of the day except Frank and Karen and so I'm wondering what happens if you just said that's it I don't want to do it anymore I've got other things to do what would happen?
1: Yeah I I don't really know right now. Patsy McClure is very good taking care of the hall rentals like she'll give out the keys and meet the people and uh, give them the instructions whether she wants like she used to run the card games as well she has aging parents who both ended up in a nursing home and her mother is still in a nursing home so i think she finds it uh, a little bit much plus she still works and her husband is a fisherman Aside from her, there aren't too many other people that are interested in doing it. And I think she just does it in honor of her parents because that was their hall. Her parents used to rent the hall every New Year's and have a New Year's party with everybody.
0: Oh, that would be and nice. they
1: music and dancing and food. And I think it's in their honor that she still volunteer. They were pulling straws and taking different jobs on but somehow that faded all the the locals around here are all fishermen may and june they're definitely not around and uh, then there's they're making their traps and they're doing this and they're doing that and then some of them go on a holiday they look at us and they say oh they're retired they have nothing to do (laughs) we'll let
0: them do it right but we want to enjoy it in conclusion karen what advice would you give Karen Lads today when you were age 20? If you were 20 years old today, knowing what you know now and experiencing what you have, what advice would you give that young woman today?
1: Finish school. Like, I took a lot of courses. I didn't get all the diplomas that I wanted, so I wouldn't say that. I would like to know a few languages.
0: Would that be different than, say, if you would give your granddaughter today? Would that? What advice would you give to well, a young any, woman any, of today? Any,
1: any child, I'd say finish what you start because it's very important. Maybe, maybe that's not what you're designed to do, but whatever you are designed to do, finish it. Get the paperwork, do it. I think a lot of people have skills and they learn the skills, but they don't have the paperwork for it to prove it. So that was one of my big regrets. When I trained as an X-ray technician, I got married and I didn't pass my RT. I had to redo physics. I regret not redoing that.
0: But other than that, you have no other regrets. Do you think had you chosen that path, your life would be different today? And how would it be different?
1: I think that diploma is very important. I don't think it would be really different. I might have earned more money. I would have liked to have brought in more money.
0: That would not have deterred from the happy person that you are and the the well-satisfied and accomplished person that you are today, suffice it to say?
1: Oh yeah, everything has turned out wonderful for me, so I'm, I'm very happy with that. Just lucky along the way, I guess.
0: Lucky in love, lucky in life.
1: Yeah, very well.
0: On that note, I'd like to thank our guest today, On something to talk about, we have had the pleasure of speaking with Karen Lads-Senichal from Cambridge, Prince Edward Island. Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: You're welcome.
0: Yeah, onward and forward, right? One foot in front of the other. That's right. Thank you, Karen. It was good talking to you. talk about is a door-in-the-floor production in association with Winterloot Studios for Island Waves. The voice of Prince Edward Island. Executive producer and creator, Virginia Winter. Research contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms. Audio technical and director assistance Brittany Williams. Post-production, Winterloot Studios, Prince Edward Island master editing Virginia winter the producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series something to talk about who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us and to Holland College School of Journalism and Mass Communications particularly to Brittany Williams and to Lindsay Carroll Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to Talk About is a door-in-the-floor Winterlude studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of... Prince Edward Island. Something to Talk About is a door-in-the-floor production in association with Winterlude Studios for Island Waves. The voice of Prince Edward Island. Executive producer and creator, Virginia Winter. Research contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms. Audio technical and director assistance Brittany Williams. Post-production, Winterlude Studios, Prince Edward Island master editing Virginia Winter. The producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series, Something to Talk About, who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us. And to Holland College School of Journalism and Mass Communications, particularly to Brittany Williams and to Lindsay Carroll. Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to Talk About is a door-in-the-floor, Winterlude Studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of... Prince Edward Ireland.